Good evening. I'm Harvey Perlman, Chancellor of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. This is the final lecture in the season's 2007-2008 forum series. We appreciate your attendance and interest in the Ian Thompson Forums on World Issues. We are deeply grateful to the Thompson family and the Cooper Foundation for their continuing support of this series. We also thank the LEAD Center, Nebraska Educational Telecommunications, Cable Channel 21, KRNU Radio, KLIN Radio, the University Bookstore, the Nebraska Humanities Council, and St. Paul's United Methodist Church. Before I introduce our speaker for this evening, I'd like to announce our upcoming slate of speakers for the 20th anniversary year of the Thompson Forum on World Issues. Seven speakers will present topics centered around the theme, Democracy's Future for the 2008-2009 series. We will begin in September with David Gergen, Professor of Public Service at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government and CNN Political Analyst. This lecture is co-sponsored with the Governor's Lecture in the Humanities, and Mr. Gergen's Lecture is titled, Eyewitness to Power, the Essence of Leadership. In October, Ronald Borkin, Frank Henry Summer, Professor of Law and Philosophy at NYU, and Jeremy Bentham, Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University College London, will speak about democracy and religion, America and Israel. This Kripke Lecture is presented in collaboration with the UNL Norman and Bernice Harris Center for Judaic Studies. In November, Ted Sorensen, native Nebraskan, author, legendary speechwriter, special counsel, and advisor of President John F. Kennedy, will lecture about a life at the edge of history. In February, the Thompson Forum presents the Lewis E. Harris Lecture on Public Policy with F. W. de Klerk, recipient of the 1993 Nobel Peace Prize and the former state president of South Africa, who engineered in the end of apartheid, will speak about Bridging the Gap, Globalization Without Isolation. In March, Sarah Chase, noted author and reporter, will speak about Afghanistan, Notes from the Other War. Also in March, we'll feature the second Charles Alinda Wilson Dialogue on Domestic Issues with Dr. Michael Olivas and Dr. Vernon Briggs, presenting the topic of Immigration Path to Citizenship. And to round out the 20th anniversary season, Colin Campbell, Chairman, President, and Chief Executive Officer of the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, former Executive Vice President of Wesleyan University in Middleton, Connecticut, will speak about citizenship in a global age. Please consult your University of Nebraska Lincoln E.N. Thompson website for more information about these upcoming speakers. Tonight, we are honored to have with us Bruce Babbitt, Chairman of the Board of the World Wildlife Fund in the United States and President of Raintree Ventures a Washington, D.C.-based investment firm. He served as the 47th United States Secretary of the Interior from 1993 to 2001, when he actively sought to protect scenic and historic areas of America's federal public lands. He was elected Attorney General of Arizona in his first foray into public service and served from 1975 to 1978, when he became Governor of Arizona, a post he held until 1987. A graduate of the University of Notre Dame and Harvard Law School, he holds degrees in geology, geophysics, and law. Secretary Babbitt has made significant footprints in the landscape of environmental policy. As Arizona's governor, he negotiated and steered to passage the Arizona Groundwater Management Act of 1980, which remains the most comprehensive water regulatory system in the nation. He created the Arizona Department of Water Resources and the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality, promoted a major expansion of the state park system. 
As Secretary of the Interior, he led in the creation of the Forest Plan in the Pacific Northwest, restoration of the Florida Everglades, passage of the California Desert Protection Act, and legislation for the National Wildlife Refuge System. He reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone Park. Under his watch, federal wild land fire policies were created to emphasize the important role of fire in natural ecosystems. He pioneered the use of habitat conservation plans under the Endangered Species Act and created 22 new national monuments. His most recent publication is Cities in the Wilderness, recently issued by Island Press, in which he lays out a new vision of land use in America. At the conclusion of tonight's lecture, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of our speaker. Lori Benson of the UNL Water Center will moderate questions. Please write down your questions on the cards provided and pass them to the ushers. Following the question and answer session, Secretary Babbitt will sign books in the orchestra lobby. The title of the address this evening is Nebraska's Water Future, Feast or Famine. Please join me in welcoming Bruce Babbitt to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Chancellor Perlman, thank you very much for that introduction. And uh, let me express my great pleasure at being here with you tonight. Returning to Nebraska, really uh, in public for the first time uh, since uh, I left uh, Washington as Secretary of the Interior some uh, eight years ago. Uh, as some of you may know, I spent a not inconsiderable amount of time as secretary here. I uh, enjoyed uh, engaging with your leaders in your state enormously and frankly have uh, kind of missed, you know, the public spotlight uh, in the nature of American government. Uh, your term's over, they shut the lights out and you're back on the street wondering where your driver is and uh, why no one uh, seems to answer your phone calls very promptly anymore. Um, I was actually thinking about this morning. I got on uh, the airplane from Washington fairly early in a kind of quiet, reflective mood. And as we took off and got airborne, there's this fellow sitting next to me, and he kind of looks over at me and goes back to his newspaper and kind of looks again a little more intently, goes back, and finally he says, I got it. Didn't you used to be Bruce Babbitt? So, in that spirit, I'm uh, pleased to come back to uh, reflect for a few moments tonight on uh, your water futures and uh, what I sense to be a, a tiny bit of uh, beleaguered feeling in this wonderful state, uh, surrounded by neighbors eager to take your water. Uh, Upstream states like Wyoming and Colorado trying to use it all up before it gets here, and then downstream states like Kansas demanding that it all pass right through Nebraska uh, for their benefit, and here you are uh, being assailed on uh, all sides. Well, let me begin by uh, laying out uh, two kind of uh, markers. First of all, as an Arizonan, uh, I must tell you that when I come to Nebraska, 
I feel like I'm in a rainforest <laughs> compared to Arizona. And uh, secondly, I am astonished and genuinely pleased at the progress uh, that you have made as a state uh, in water management. Uh, I'm certain that sometimes, in, as Kansas demands, you know, another multi-million dollar payment as uh, upstream states are uh, reaching out uh, for your water, you may, in the heat of battle, not appreciate how far uh, Nebraska has come in the management of its water resources. I couldn't have said that 10 or 15 years ago uh, when I first came here, uh, but it's true. And what I want to do tonight is both in an optimistic spirit uh, reflect on uh, how far you've come and uh, the uh, extraordinary resources that you have available, uh, and then move on to see if I can suggest uh, a, a few areas that in which uh, you really ought to continue uh, to maintain the momentum that you have uh, begun. Now, I'd like to do that by taking a brief trip to three rivers. First of all, the Platte, then the Republican, and then lastly, the Missouri, because I think each of them has important lessons uh, to illustrate uh, where you've been and where it is uh, we need to go. My first trip to the Platte River was many, many years ago when I came, like many other Americans, increasingly more and more, uh, to see the cranes in the Middle Platte. And I'll never forget the first evening uh, that I stood in a blind as the sun was setting behind a bank of dark clouds and the sky sort of reddened clear up to the meridian behind those clouds. And then these strings and enormous flocks of birds darkening the sky came in and began splashing down into the water and on the sandbars and this great sort of croaking noise filling the entire night uh, as the stars came out overhead. Uh, it's the most awesome wildlife sight that I have ever seen anywhere in my entire life. Uh, it's a sight that in my judgment every American ought to see as surely as I would say that they should see uh, the Grand Canyon. Now, poetry aside, uh, I subsequently came back to the Platte River uh, in the midst of a crisis involving the listing of three endangered species, the tern, um, the plover, the pallid sturgeon, uh, actually four of uh, the whooping crane, which had been on the list uh, for a long time. Uh, the problem, as I saw it in 1995, was one that I'd seen before. Uh, basically, Nebraska, and the upstream states had a water system uh, that they had uh, quarreled over and worked out in varying degrees to the satisfaction of water users of all different groups. 
except the wildlife. Uh, and uh, the stream flows below McConaughey Dam uh, were dwindling uh, perilously close to zero uh, and extinction. Now, the Endangered Species Act is a powerful piece of federal legislation. Uh, and as I looked at those issues, I had it suggested to me that the best thing to do was just let it drop back into the federal courts with the assurance that a federal judge uh, would then use uh, the uh, remedies in the act to take control of water releases from McConaughey Dam, uh, from Pathfinder and the other federal facilities uh, up in Wisconsin. And we would just quietly wring our hands and uh, say it's the fault of the federal judiciary. Uh, I paused at that moment because I had been through an experience like that in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, this was the famous spotted owl controversy uh, in the old growth forests of Washington and Oregon, where our predecessors in office had done just that. And that had led to a federal judge in Seattle issuing a blanket injunction halting all logging on federal lands, some 20 million acres of federal lands in the Northwest. We struggled through that and finally, uh, across the years, uh, got a workable result. But out of that lesson, I came to understand that when it comes to managing wildlife and natural resources and water, the courts are not the place for the fine, careful constituency bargaining, the trade-offs, uh, all of the uh, possible arrangements. And I looked at the Platte River and at those dams and uh, said to President Clinton, there's got to be a better way. And that's the point at which I came uh, out here in 1997 and sat down with the governors of Wyoming and Colorado and Nebraska and said, I will stay the application of the Endangered Species Act provided that you, the governors of the three states, will get involved and address the problem of providing more water at the right time on the central plant stretches that support those birds. Well, to make a long story very short, it's taken 10 years to get that done. But it has been done. And in many ways, this interstate agreement, which has now been signed off by our successors, none of the original governors are there, and uh, I'm long gone, but the process has now been signed, and last week, the United States Congress passed legislation. Uh, it's not quite done, but it's 98% of the way there, endorsing the agreement appropriating, authorizing the appropriation of several hundred million dollars uh, in support of a 10-year plan to begin looking for irrigation efficiencies, uh, using uh, money uh, for 
seasonal purchase of water rights uh, in times of drought and at other critical points, all designed uh, to uh, assure the continuance uh, of that extraordinary wildlife uh, ingathering uh, that takes place uh, every year uh, in central Nebraska. Uh, it's an extraordinary achievement uh, across party lines, across state lines. I think it sort of foreshadows a different way of working on these wildlife and water allocation issues. And uh, there's going to be surely a lot of difficult passages in getting the water and making the adjustments. But it could not have happened without public support. And it is, in many ways, a first of a kind, a precedent for working on these issues elsewhere across the land. Okay, now let's go to the Republican River, which seems, if I read the press right, to be a subject of some current uh, minor contention involving uh, various parties on that river. Uh, I'm going to start by saying that I believe that the settlement uh, among the three states in 2002 uh, was a statesmanlike and good uh, approach uh, to the problem. Uh, so what's the problem? Well, it's nobody's fault, but here's my understanding of what happened. I've seen it again and again and again all over the West. The compact apportioning the water among Colorado, Nebraska, and Kansas was entered into, I don't know the exact date, probably back in the 50s sometime. Anybody got a date for me out here? 43, okay, got it. It was a different age. It was before the age of large-scale groundwater agriculture irrigation. It was before uh, the rise of uh, the big uh, circular uh, pump systems and uh, modern uh, uh, pumping technology. And the parties uh, quite, uh, quite understandably, in retrospect, dealt only with surface water. That's all that anybody was really concerned about at that time was the relative diversions of uh, streams and waters. Uh, groundwater simply was not an issue. Uh, you look out across the landscape and you'd see windmills feeding stock tanks. Uh, and frankly, uh, the perception was there isn't any reason even to think about it. Groundwater is out of sight, out of mind. Uh, Nobody sends their kids swimming in, a, in groundwater. You don't go fishing in groundwater. You, nobody's ever seen a sunset across a body of groundwater. Uh, it's just, just not there. Um, and out of that evolved a groundwater uh, law, really, kind of almost a common law, which said that Whatever was beneath your 40 or 160 or 320 acres was yours to use. Uh, and that was the end of the issue. All of this compact and law stuff was to apportion 
streams that uh, could be dried up by excessive uh, diversions. So it's out of that kind of duality that uh, we came face to face with modern groundwater uh, technology and the great uh, circular uh, uh, center pivot irrigation systems uh, to the current problem. Now, the negotiators in 2002 did what they had to do, which was recognize the hydrologic connection between groundwater and surface water, to step up to the reality that groundwater pumping in the alluvial plains of these rivers uh, is in measurable time subtracting uh, from the surface flow uh, of the river. And had they not made that acknowledgement, uh, the courts, the federal courts, ultimately would have done it for them. And now we fast forward, of course, to the current issue, which is Nebraska's struggle to deal with the necessary compact-driven reductions in tributary groundwater use in the Republican River Valley. I know it's a hard sell. I understand there are farmers out there who went onto the land and began pumping groundwater when there were no regulations at all and not even any understanding that there would ever need to be because there wasn't any real clear understanding of the connection. That's the problem we face today. Now, Nebraska, to its great credit, has now put together the tools to deal with that issue. The first tool, of course, uh, is a public law uh, 962, which uh, is a uh, really a magnificent uh, uh, piece of work by uh, your prior governors and uh, legislatures, which allows the Department of Natural Resources and the Natural Resource Districts uh, in combination uh, to uh, begin to lay out uh, equitable regulations for uh, reduction in pumping uh, as necessary uh, to uh, meet compact requirements. I sense as I come to Nebraska that there's a sense of slackening in the determination to deal with this issue. It's difficult, it's contentious, uh, and I hope I'm misreading uh, the uh, public uh, sentiment in this state. Because if by failure to administer those laws and work the system, we let this drop back into litigation, I think that's a big mistake. The litigation, uh, if Nebraska does not muster the resolve to continue to work this problem at the administrative level, uh, the litigation will be in a federal court. Uh, it will be absolutely unpredictable. Uh, the only predictable thing is that the litigation will wind up in front of a judge who has no more competence to deal with these issues than a random name in the Omaha phone directory. And that 
is not an acceptable course of action. So, as an outsider, uh, with real affection for this state and a and great admiration uh, for all that you've done, uh, I simply counsel you, don't let it happen. Now, I would only say additionally that the Nebraska Supreme Court has also done a great job in the evolution of your water futures. Uh, I read a decision some time ago called Spear T, which uh, Spear T Ranch, uh, which involved a groundwater surface water dispute out in the Pumpkin Creek drainage. And your Supreme Court reached the same kind of conclusion that the negotiators did down in the Republican uh, River Valley back in 2002. The Nebraska Supreme Court said uh, groundwater and surface water are hydrologically connected. And that means that a surface appropriator with prior rights uh, is entitled uh, to legal remedies if uh, groundwater users who have subsequently uh, come into the picture uh, are uh, by uh, pumping of uh, wells in the alluvial plain reducing stream water flow. It's a correct and I think uh, inspired decision. Your job uh, equally will be uh, to encourage your state officials to administer this law in the, don't just say it's the intrastate local analog of what's happening down in the Republican River Valley. Every surface water irrigator in this state at some point, when there's not much water coming down into his canal or lateral, uh, is going to look up at groundwater pumpers and look for an administrative reconciliation of the competing uses. And I think it's important uh, to put together the administrative will and the administrative institutions to handle those. Uh, for the most part, to handle them administratively rather uh, than have each and every case uh, show up uh, in the judicial system. Lastly, having uh, made it through the Platte River uh, down to the Republican River Valley. I want to end uh, on the Missouri River. Uh, and the point I want to make here is that I believe Nebraska should reconsider and change its long-standing traditional political position on the Missouri River. I don't believe Nebraska policy on the Missouri River serves the long-range interests of this state. Let me explain. The issue, uh, as is not infrequently the case, uh, is kind of the unintended byproduct of misguided federal policies in the hands of overzealous bureaucrats and a willing Congress ready to uh, dish out uh, sums for public works uh, anywhere, anytime, uh, anywhere. The story begins in approximately 1960, give or take a few years, in which the Corps of Engineers went to Congress and said, 
you know, we have created a barge traffic system on the Mississippi River and on the Ohio tributary to the east, uh, which seems to be working quite well. It's now time to do the same thing on the Missouri River. Now, what we would what we would like to do, they said, is build a barge channel from St. Louis to Sioux City, Iowa, right up past Kansas City and Omaha. And it was done, as these things often were, without any serious consideration of whether or not there was any need for barge traffic. Uh, and what the environmental uh, costs would be of taking a gorgeous, braided, wonderfully wide, big, muddy river creating sloughs and sandbars full of fish, vast flocks of wildlife, hardwood forests, bottomland forests full of wildlife and deer, uh, a river which was essentially in the same condition uh, 50 years ago that it was when Lewis and Clark made their way up from St. Louis uh, in uh, the winters of 1823, uh, in the years 1823 and, and four. Uh, and in due course, that barge channel uh, was built at enormous environmental cost. I mean, the Missouri River now, from Gavin's Point to St. Louis, is, is a muddy channel with levees on both sides, with most of the uh, sloughs and bottomland forests gone. For what? There's nothing there. There are Now, is that hyperbole? No. I went just out of real interest and spent the larger part of an entire day uh, on the bluffs in central Missouri looking to see what was there. The only thing I saw all day, other than a couple of, you know, pleasure craft, the only real vessel I saw was not a barge, but a couple of Corps of Engineer boats patrolling an empty waterway. Um, and I don't believe that it's in Nebraska's interest to continue to join with Missouri in this endless litigation uh, designed to make sure that the barge channel is brimming with water, released from the upstream lakes, lowering the upstream lakes uh, uh, to no purpose. Nebraska kind of has a foot in both camps on this river. You're uh, uh, alongside the barge channel up as far as Sioux Sioux City, Sioux Falls, uh, and you're really with the upper basin states uh, along Lake Lewis and Clark above Gavin's Point, where you have a big recreational stake that is hugely compromised by these incessant drawdowns for the benefit of keeping the channel full, even though there's nothing on it. Uh, and I'd like to leave you, if I may, with kind of a visionary challenge because I believe Nebraska is the pivotal state here uh, to try to make some sense out of this and that it really would be possible to say we want a vision of a Missouri River 
below the last dam on the river at Gavin's Point, all the way down to St. Louis, which has been freed of that constriction by taking the levees down, abandoning the dredging and the spoils and all the gunk, and letting the river back into its natural channel. I believe it would really create one of the great natural places of this entire American continent to think that that great river, the gateway to the West, could be easily and simply restored with all of the economic and wildlife and aesthetic and recreational benefits that it could bring, not just as a local place, but as a vision uh, of a great river restored. Thank you very much. Thank you, Governor Babbitt. I'm Lori Benson with the uh, UNL, UNL Water Center. It's my pleasure to be the moderator for the question and answer portion of your presentation. A reminder to the audience that if you care to submit a question, that there, the uh, ushers will be picking up your questions. The first question, by tradition, comes from a student group, the E.N. Thompson Scholars, uh, International Scholars, and the question is, what would be a fair middle ground that would satisfy both farmers' efforts for economic growth and efforts for water preservation and plains restoration? In plains restoration? Mm -hmm. uh, where is the middle ground? Um, well, I guess I start by reflecting as follows. Um, you can correct me on your figures. I think. Were you to remove the sand hills from consideration, that outside of the sand hills, probably 90 to 95 percent of the land in this state is planted to row crops. That's quite extraordinary. It's a testimonial to uh, the productivity and the rich soil and water endowment. Uh, of this state. Uh, I've often thought, what would happen if you were to say, over time, uh, we would rededicate one or two percent of that to uh, wildlife? And I would do it in this way. I would take the Platte River experience, because that really is about river, about river restoration in terms of preserving stream flows and broadening out uh, the bottom lands uh, by taking small amounts uh, and restoring them to native forest. What would happen if you were to say we're going to have a public policy in this state of examining all of the tributary waterways of Nebraska above a certain size. Start, of course, with the Niobrara and some of the larger rivers. But I'd look at all that finger pattern that kind of flows diagonally across the state, uh, down, uh, I guess it's kind of diagonally up toward the Platte River uh, as it reaches the Missouri, and said, 
We ought to have a state that is absolutely dedicated agriculture, but which has these greenways, these strands of restored habitat of wildlife corridors running through all of these bottomlands as they kind of, or many of them, as they kind of connect up toward the Platte River. Um, I recognize that you couldn't do it overnight. Uh, most of these, many of them, probably most of these areas are private property. Uh, and, but I would think with a combination of long-range things such as uh, tax benefits of the targeted use of the Conservation Reserve Program. Um, there's a professor at one of your universities who has suggested that, you know, a small uh, water withdrawal fee could over the period of time be used to purchase uh, stream bank greenways for the benefit of both water, wildlife, and public access. So uh, I guess I would leave you with uh, uh, that. It, it, the, the balance doesn't need big rebalance. You just need a few percent over time in the right places, namely a restoration of these patterns of streams across the land. Kind of a related question. If we followed your vision on the Missouri, how would it adversely impact farmland? How would my vision uh, impact farmland? Well, it would impact uh, some, because uh, I think what you would want to do is look at the levee system and carefully ask, where can we either get rid of the levees or move them way back? Uh, Throughout most of Missouri, you can actually get rid of the levees because the Missouri River is actually in a natural channel with limestone bluffs. It's about, I would say, from a half to two miles wide all the way across Missouri. It's not quite so clear as you, as you turn north uh, headed up between Nebraska and Iowa. And I think you would have to kind of look. Now, it's not as if this is a brand new idea, because I remember Senator Bob Kerry dragging me out here one icy spring day uh, down to somewhere north of Omaha where the levees had been moved back and where there was a riparian forest uh, regenerating. Uh, so I would start with, you know, we're going to do it, uh, but we will assess uh, the implications for uh, where the flood levees, where there are not natural barriers, and uh, try to assess how much bottomland farm could actually be uh, purchased uh, from uh, willing sellers or otherwise. But we did this after the 93 flood, actually, in, uh, in central Missouri, where the levees had been smashed and there were about six or eight feet of sand over a great area just uh, below Columbia, Missouri. And we paid off the farmers who said, we don't want to go back there, and created um, a place called uh, the Big Muddy National Wildlife Refuge. It's a site to behold. It's a, it's a perfect vision of what could happen. 
Are you worried about ethanol's effect on water quantity and quality? And if so, what are your specific concerns? Um, I am worried about ethanol. Um, I, uh, my concerns are broader than just uh, water. It's, it's, it is water intensive, but um, my premise has been that if you manage your water supplies, uh, there, uh, you know, you can't exclude it on those grounds. There are two issues with ethanol. Uh, the first is that as a solution to greenhouse gases and global warming, it's just about a wash. By the time you add all the fossil fuel into the production of ethanol, uh, it's not clear that uh, there's any real advantage. Uh, as a move toward you know, more diverse energy sources, uh, well, I'll leave it to you to uh, you know, puzzle that out. I think we should say as follows. We've got to be cautious with corn-based ethanol and as quickly as we can move toward cellulosic ethanol, which is uh, corn stalks and wood chips and stuff like that, which really does have a big gain in terms of uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, one other point. Uh, I think it is a real mistake to be plow to be invading conservation reserves and even worse, plowing up native prairie uh, in the big rush toward ethanol. And uh, I agree with, I think it's Senator Thune from South, Carolina, uh, South Dakota who has said, uh, we probably ought to consider withdrawing farm subsidies from those farmers who are sod-busting native prairie uh, in this uh, latest agricultural expansion. How would you rate the... Uh... <laughs> How would you rate the Bush administration's record on the environment? Zero. <laughs> Uh, and perhaps another political question, can we ever get rid of the Corps of Engineers? Gee. I'm sorry, of the... Of the Army Corps of Engineers. How did I not hear that question? <laughs> uh, let me just say one thing about that, because I arm-wrestled the Army Corps of Engineers non-stop for eight years. Uh, it was really an extraordinary experience for these two reasons. The Army Corps of Engineers does not answer to the elected leadership of the United States. It's buried over in the Defense Department. The Secretary of Defense, I used to say to the Secretary of Defense, why don't you help me get control of the Corps of Engineers? Well, the Secretary of Defense didn't even know <laughs> that he had the Corps of Engineers. <laughs> and the Corps of Engineers figured out that their key to success was a public works project in every congressional district of the United States. And they, they've, in fact, done that. And they report only 
to the congressional committees. Every member has uh, works in his or her district. I don't know when that's ever going to change. One thing I learned in Florida, where we worked on Everglades restoration, is if you can turn local public opinion against them, uh, they will respond. They're a political animal, but uh, it's pretty hard to persuade entrenched local political structures who have loved these flood control and, you know, sort of public works projects to uh, go for something, you know, a little more uh, friendly to uh, the natural environment. Uh, Governor, I know this is something you've uh, written about, so this is a nice chance for you to update us. The last seven years have left the American lands west of the 100th meridian with significantly depleted water supplies. This has happened coinciding with large-scale development in extremely dry states such as Utah and Arizona. Do you believe we are entering a second phase of building of large-scale water projects, and do you think we have learned our lessons from the previous golden age of dams and transbasin diversions? Well, maybe I should have called this off before. <laughs> last question. Well, um, we've made all of us collectively in our generations as Westerners a lot of commitments to uh, dam building. And I've got to tell you, the finest moments of my tenure as Secretary of the Interior was tearing down dams. Uh, it, uh, I say that not because we were out, you know, dynamiting uh, the uh, Grand Coulee Dam or Glen Canyon Dam, but because we actually did begin the process of inventorying dams uh, in the United States and asking the question, aren't there some of these that really, it's kind of like that barge canal, really, should either never have been built or don't have any purpose anymore. We found that there were 75,000 dams over four feet high in the United States. That's one built every day since Thomas Jefferson was president. And we actually uh, began with a little dam down in South Carolina uh, and persuaded, got the consensus to rip it out, and have since uh, moved on to California and New England and uh, found that there are many of these dams uh, that simply have outlived their useful life. And we, we're, we can continue with that process. I think the age of large-scale dam building uh, is gone. It's over. Uh, it really is. There aren't uh, going to be any more uh, in this country. I think we've at least reached that plateau. Okay. Uh, we'll take uh, one last question here. Okay. But before we do that, I have uh, two quick announcements to make. Um, Immediately after this session, Governor Babbitt will be signing his uh, book, Cities in the Wilderness, in the orchestra lobby. And a reminder, as Chancellor Perlman mentioned, next year's series will be on democracy's future. If you'd like to sign up for email notification or mail notification about next year's series or learn more about it, uh, you might want to go to their website, enthompson.unl.edu. Hmm. Gee, it's hard to pick between these two. I, I may have to say two more, actually. Okay. 
How, how can we change the negative connotation of the Endangered Species Act to encourage involvement and compliance? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting an echo from both directions. From oh, I'm sorry. How can we change the negative well, to, connotation? To encourage a, yes. a compliance. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the, the big repeat criticism of the Endangered Species Act is, of course, that uh, it is mandatory uh, by its terms once a, a species has reached uh, the point uh, of near extinction. Uh, and uh, the, the question is a good one. How do we encourage landowners uh, to be more proactive in assisting uh, with the recovery of species. I think the most innovative uh, way that we've worked on that is a, uh, is a program called Safe Harbor, where we have said to landowners, uh, if you will, in listen to this, if you will encourage endangered species to come onto your property. We will hold you harmless in terms of either removing them or letting you uh, proceed in subsequent years with plans uh, for changing your land use on the theory that if we get people actively involved uh, in expanding the range of the species, that extra effort will not create this mandatory uh, protection and that, sure, we'll get some expansion, we'll lose some, but the uh, voluntary nature of the expansion uh, will more than off, uh, and, and the results of it will more than offset uh, the changes. Uh, we did that uh, with uh, the red cockaded woodpecker on golf courses uh, down in the south, and it's been hugely successful. There are, uh, down in the, in the Sandhills country, there are woodpeckers uh, looking at every golfer out of the branches of trees. <laughs> uh, so there are possibilities. And, and one last thing, we'd like your unique perspective on this. Is it time for the Secretary of the Interior to become a nonpartisan position? Uh, I don't know. I kind of like the partisan. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. There are... I'm not sure because I, I think that you can put too much of government kind of off limits from the political process, and it, it sounds good, but then when it winds up in the wrong place, it, you know, there's no way of fixing it all. Not even elections will fix it. So uh, I, I guess I wouldn't sign on to that uh, right away. On the other hand, uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I want to go back someday. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Governor. <laughs>